and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Rim, magazine editor at Horse and Hound. Well, it is hard to believe it's already the middle of November. We are well into our planning for the show formerly known as Olympia, the London International Horse Show, as we must now call it. Such a great Christmas fixture that we always look forward to. And I also can't wait to reveal this year's Horse and Hound advent calendar to everybody next week. That's the 25th of November issue of the magazine. This week, we'll be speaking to Danielle Heath and finding out how she got into producing horses for the show ring. Production was never sort of something that, you know, I was going to go into. I just sort of always thought I'd just do my own horses and, and just enjoyed it and, and felt, you know, I was quite good at it. So I thought, well, stick to what you're good at. And that was it, really. I'll be chatting to our news team about whose opinion matters, fireworks and climate change as well as previewing the point-to-point season with our pointing editor, Gemma Redrup. Finally, Jason Webb will join us to continue his series on starting young horses by talking about bitting. Now, when I start this process, I like to establish a, a connection with the horse. So a little bit of leading, contact, giving a rub over, just getting a sense of the horse and the horse's sense of me as well. More from Jason later. In the meantime, pop on that exercise blanket and let's get started. Hello and welcome to Horse and Hound's guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone is managing to adjust to the dark nights and the terrible weather that winter has offered us so far. I know most show horses and ponies are enjoying some well-earned breaks, either in the field or out hunting. And I'm sure you riders are taking some well-earned time out too. And even though we're grateful of some time off, uh, the 2022 show season will soon be upon us. And here to help make sure we're ready to rock and roll next term is leading show horse producer Danielle Heath, who has taken some time out to chat to us about how we can use the winter wisely to get ready for next year. Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Hi, Alex. So Danielle is one of the top showing professionals. She's based in Cheshire and she's most recently come back from the Horse of the Year show, Hoys, where she was hack champion with the Mears family's Forgeland Hyde Park. And she also won the heavyweight Cobb of the Year title with Anne Lee's Bobby Dazzler. And Danielle's won countless titles during her career as a show producer, including at Windsor, the Royal International. And even though we're really keen to hear her top tips for for winter training, it's always so interesting to hear how much admired producers started out so Danielle do you remember your first big winning ride you know maybe that horse or pony who you felt you know gave you the showing bug yes the first uh, the first one was morning melody she was a 49 show on to pony uh, she was done with black points she was beautiful my mum found her at a local riding uh, club show and she just had amazing paces and a, and a fantastic brain and she won the Royal International horse show when it used to be at the NEC uh, when I was 12 um, and that was my first big win somewhere, big occasion like that and going into that championship she was reserve champion in the evening um, wow. and that gave me the taste of going under the lights in the big indoor <laughs> and that was the first sort of feeling of you know this is really what I want to do. Mm. And when did you decide to go go professional? Um, really sort of my early 20s I'd produced sort of my own Horses. I lost my mum when I was 21 and we did it mm-hmm. closely together so then it sort of gave me something passionately to carry on with um, and I always had intermediate 15 twos that did sort of the intermediate 
hunter classes um, and the working hunter and then that sort of got me overlapping into the horse classes um, doing the small hunters and the working hunter horse classes um, and did that for a couple of years and then I sold one and, and the owners wanted me to carry on riding him and that sort of I fell into it that way really Pro produ production was never sort of something that there was you know I was going to go into I just sort of always mm -hmm. thought I'd just do my own horses and that was sort of the first taste of it really of riding somebody else's horse and just enjoyed it and and felt you know I was quite good at it so I thought <laughs> well stick to what you're good at and that was it really. Brilliant and, and what was your first kind of big championship win as a pro? Um, probably the, again the small hunters at the um, Royal International when it was at Hickstead and that was in I think 2008 and that was my first big small hunter win and that was with Swanee River um, and he was a, a lovely horse that was bought out of Ireland by uh, the late Jane Hankey mm -hmm. and he was owned by Pauline Binks who's been an owner with me now for 25 years so she's, uh, she's the longest standing owner that I've had. And I've always had small hunters for Pauline and we've had probably about 12 over the years now. Mm -hmm. Brill, and, and do you have a favourite win from your career? You know, it doesn't have to be the biggest, as I know some of the most memorable ones are kind of achieved with those those tricky horses or, you know, yeah. when it's completely unexpected. I think it has to be O'Till Take the Biscuit, Hovis. Yeah. I think he was... He was very colourful when I had him as a, a four-year-old. He uh, he doesn't know whether he wanted to do the job or not. And then after twelve months coming into his five-year-old season, he, he just got he just loved it, you know. And and we just had this real special bond. And and he gave me my first horse the year show win and championship. So, I mean that first win there, it, it, I mean there's just nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, moving into the into the present day and looking at winter, um, what does Team Heath tend to do over winter? Do you guys have a complete break from riding or are you out hunting? Yeah, how do you kind of run your winter season? Yeah, I mean, we, I used to hunt quite a bit, but over the last sort of 15, 20 years, because we got so busy with the showing through the summer, it's sort of a time where we like to relax and chill out a little mm. bit. We have a few babies that come in um, that we do ourselves ready for the following season we're only a small yard so we try and keep the numbers low there's only me and a, my full-time yard groom um yard manager uh, tiffany smith who's sort of my right hand man and you know we just do them ourselves and then i have a girl that gives me a hand at weekends with mucking out um so through the winter yeah we just do that and, and all the established horses have a, a good couple of months off and then slowly come back into some hacking work in the january mm -hmm. uh, a couple of the horses go home to their owners that have their own land um, and a few of them stay here, so it's it's quite nice, and it just gives us all a break to recharge batteries, and gives us all fresh faces ready to start mm. with the following season. And you definitely need that time off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And and when do you start looking for for shows for next year and kind of planning your season? Because I mean, it does come around so quickly, doesn't it? So when do you guys kind of you know get the get the diary out and start getting those shows in? It does actually. Probably March time, we start to get judges come through and definite dates for shows. Um, there's there's a certain set of shows that we just all love to do, like Royal Windsor, Lincoln, Great Yorkshire. You know, special shows that we, we will go no matter what. So those sort of the the biggies that we'll do through the year, and then obviously the ones in between are, are getting quali horses qualified and things like that. But I try to not overshow the horses if they get the tickets early. Then especially the older horses, they'll have a, a bit of a steady, steady mm -hmm. away till 
um, the championships come up. And with the dark nights and, you know, the, the lack of daylight, um, are there a few training exercises you could potentially recommend to riders who, you know, might work full time and need to fit in some training so they're ready for next year, but don't necessarily have a lot of time to, you know, school during the day? Is there any exercises you could recommend? Yeah, I mean, I'm a great believer of using the Pessoa at least once or twice a week with horses. I think it keeps them really supple through their shoulders, through the neck, through the backs. It's not too much pressure on the mouths. And if they can just do a little bit of that, even on a dark night, you know, if they've got a, a lunge pen or an outdoor school or even a, a field that's not too wet, um, just five or ten minutes on a Pessoa, mm. even if it's just a bit of walk work, uh, and, and 10 minutes a trot just to get those horses keeping supple and keep keeping the shapes mm-hmm. is really good yeah and um, when would you suggest that we you know start getting our horses looking right for the season I can imagine it's a, a job to get done in new year but we don't want to be you know coming out in March or April with a completely unkept horse and um, when would you recommend we start yeah I guess you know really kind of looking ahead and getting ev- everything ready for the for the season yeah, I mean, we sort of get New Year's out of the way and then that's it. We sort of get them all in and, and, you know, get them clipped and then start a bit of hacking work, light work, because you want a good four weeks of that before you start putting any pressure, putting them in the school or doing any hard work with them. Um, and those 12 weeks, those first few months, go really, really quickly. Mm. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's little and often I'm a great believer of. Um and, and starting in, in that January really is ideal because, you know, you, and then you're getting them really ready for them first shows, coming out with a bang and having those horses looking spot on. Mm-hmm. And finally, some, some riders, um, you know, the, the horses might have had a long season and they might be getting a little bit sick of showing towards the, the end of the year. What could they do to ensure that their horse comes out, you know, fresh and full of life in 2022? Just do varied things, really. I mean, taking them to the beach or taking them away from the yard. We've got a fantastic fields and stream and sort of valley area at the back of us that the next door neighbours own. And luckily they allow us to use that. So, Mm. I mean, they love going cantering down the fields and standing them in the stream and, you know, just varied, taking them around fun rides and just mixing it up a little bit, you know, especially when horses are schooled and established. They really shouldn't be needing to go in that school more than once a week. Great. Thank you so much, Danielle. I know that I'll be using some of these tips myself. Um, So enjoy enjoy your winter break. Have a lovely Christmas and we can't wait to hear about your team's successes in 2022. Thank you. Lovely. Thanks, Alex. Take care. So I'm here today with all three members of our news team. First of all, our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good, thank you. Apart from the fact it's still so mild, which in itself isn't a problem, but I'm turning horses out without rugs. And when you have got greys going out without rugs at this time of year, it's not fun. (laughs) Oh, gosh, surely it would be, uh, you know, you should keep like a thin waterproof or something on them, just, you know, mainly to keep them clean. (laughs) Well, I'm tempted. (laughs) Oh, okay. We also have our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you doing, Lucy? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I'm um, I'm enjoying that the trees have actually suddenly suddenly changed in this last week, and I've been uh, lucky enough to 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 see some sunshine on them and things. There's nothing quite like riding at this time of year. I don't think it's my favourite time of year. Sort of going out for rides when the ground is, you know, it's not too wet, and um, yeah, being treated to all those colours. There's nothing quite like it. 
Oh, yeah, I was in Cornwall last week, actually, for a little break and uh, really lovely, as you say, to see the colours on the trees there and particularly actually driving back up the motorway, just uh, seeing all the colours in the views and so on was really lovely. Well, we also have with us our news writer, Becky Murray. How are you doing, Becky? I'm well, thank you. It's been all about dogs in my house the past week, to be <laughs> honest. I've been looking after my mum's two miniature dachshounds, uh, one who's a puppy, and I have my two own dogs, so I've had four to entertain this week, so I'm knackered. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we have our horse and hound dog special in, uh, in the magazine this week, so your dog situation is timely. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> well, I think most people have horses have a dog or two around the place, one way or another, so yeah. Right, I guess we have to talk about the serious news, not just about dogs and nice autumn colours. Eleanor, you have been listening into the annual World Horse Welfare Conference this week. What was the theme of that this year? Yeah, it was a, they, it's always a, a good event, the World Horse Welfare, and it always has a theme. And this year it was Whose Opinion Matters, um, which is a huge question, as I'm sure you'll agree, which, which has a lot of answers. Uh, and it was really interesting. They had the usual sort of range of experts talking about the importance of, of basing uh, decisions on science, scientific facts, and, and how that applies to an equine and animal health and welfare, the power of other people's opinions, and, and the role of the media, that's both social media and mainstream media. Mm, sounds interesting. Could you tell us about a couple of the speakers and what points they were putting across? Yeah, so so we there was a very interesting panel discussion with with experts from different fields, and they were asked questions from both the audience and the people watching online. Because actually, for the first time, this was a hybrid event. So there was the lecture hall full of people in London, and then however many hundreds and thousands of people watching online, and uh, they were they were asked, are there times when actually science isn't enough, and and because welfare maybe is shades of grey, and science could be black and white, should we ever disregard the science? And we heard from Kami Haliski, who teaches equine science and management at the University of Kentucky. And she was saying, well, actually, of course, there are some times when maybe there isn't scientific proof for some of the practices you might or might not see in the warm up at shows. And you might say, well, we haven't got evidence that that's a bad thing. But ethically, you can see it's not fair on the horse. So actually, there's times when we need to think about ethics as well as science. Um, and we heard from an MP, Neil Hudson, who's also a former vet. Uh, saying that yes science has to be the platform but we we shouldn't be afraid to challenge the science um, and, and obviously changing your mind if you come across different evidence isn't a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. Um, there was a, a, a quite a funny uh, mention made by another vet, Chris Tufnell, who's also a World Horse Welfare trustee. And he's saying sometimes, you know, you could see, see things and you correlate them with what has been done but they're not necessarily the same thing and he said there's a website on spurious correlations where you'll see for example that consumption of cheese in the US is finely correlated with deaths from entanglement in bedsheets <laughs> so what you're seeing is not always the cause for what else you're seeing <laughs> if that makes sense yeah, definitely. And uh, I was also struck, Eleanor, when I was reading your, your written reports from that conference by the really awful story about a groom who was doing everything she could to look after her ponies, but came in for some real hate online. Can you just fill us in on that story? 
Yeah, it was awful, really. I mean, in some parts, uh, in some parts, from my point of view, the awfulest thing was that it was how much snow she'd had. I think she lives not a million miles away from you, Becky, and um, they had all this hideous snow last February, and it was minus twenty three degrees, um, which shouldn't be allowed. But she was saying she's got some Highland ponies who are obviously, you know, have evolved for the Scottish climate, and it was very, very deep snow. That some snow plows had been out and. and cleared the roads and she took one of her ponies for a bit of in-hand exercise down the road she left the, her mare there with the windbreak with some hay quite happy but the mare decided to come with them on the other side of the fence and she took a very brief 12 second video of this mare plowing her way down the snow to keep up with uh, with herself jordan uh, and her other pony and she just put something on facebook didn't think anything of it and then the next day when she'd been walking for miles to get to do her ponies and, you know, carrying hot water in a rucksack to make sure they had enough to drink and to eat, she came back and just had all this judgment. That's cruel. You don't look after your ponies. You know, all this horrible stuff when literally she had just finished defrosting her eyelashes with the hairdryer, having come back doing all she possibly could to look after her ponies. Gosh, yeah, I think that's you know a really really sad story of someone who was doing her absolute best and and was knowledgeable and um and yet got a lot of judgment and i think it does make us all think about what we put out online in that sort of situation well thank you very much eleanor more from that conference in this week's horse and hound magazine Becky, we, we were talking about fireworks on the podcast last week, and we are talking about them again this week it's a, a story you are sort of following ongoingly what's been happening this week well, MPs have debated a petition in Parliament and this was calling for the sale and use of fireworks to be limited to organisers of licensed displays. This was a petition created last year that received more than 300,000 signatures and interestingly is actually the fifth debate on fireworks since 2016. The MP Elliot Colburn led the debate and in the lead up to the the he conducted his own survey on social media to get some views and in less than a week he received 75,000 responses and of these 89% of people supported a ban on fireworks other than for organised events. The debate itself was really interesting and all the MPs that spoke really agreed that change is needed. Many of them spoke out really strongly and referenced animals and the different people affected by fireworks, so that was really good to hear. But unfortunately, the government's response once again is that there are no plans for new legislation to be brought in. And an inquiry was held in 2019 that concluded further restrictions were not appropriate. And very much the government are still sticking to this at the moment. Okay, so it feels like it was slightly frustrating in that there was no commitment to a change in the law. But those involved say it was still a worthwhile conversation and there will be change eventually. Is that sort of your takeaway, Becky? Absolutely. I don't think anyone is hugely surprised by the government's response, but I, I spoke to the MP Elliot Colburn and he actually sits in the petitions committee and he says the key message now is to, to people is to really keep going. You know, he said this clearly isn't going away, as I say it was a fifth debate and Mr Colburn very much expects to be debating it again next year and he said it's creating a sense of this cannot be ignored. And I also spoke to the campaigner Julie Duren and she spoke really positively about the debate and said it does feel like progress. 
But I think what's interesting is I've seen some negative comments online from people saying MPs don't care about fireworks, but certainly that wasn't the feeling I got. I watched the debate live and as from speaking to Julie, she sort of said the MPs were getting frustrated just like the public are and I absolutely agree with that from watching it. So I think very much it's a case of carry on, keep pushing. And there is now a new petition um, calling to make fireworks illegal to buy with the exception of public displays. So the hope is everyone gets behind that and we will see a debate next year. And hopefully the government will eventually say, right, we need to do something about this. Mm. Thank you, Becky. Well, we've all been hearing a lot about COP26 in the mainstream news over the past couple of weeks. And Lucy, you have been looking at where horses come into this. And in fact, donkeys as well as horses. I know that the donkey sanctuary had a representative at that conference and you spoke to him. What did he say? Yes, Pippi, you're right in that it's it's all equids. Um, um, in fact, all of us, to be honest, um, uh, the climate change and, um, and COP26 impacts but crucially looking at the horses and donkeys involved it's not just their lives but the people whose lives rely on them um and there's an estimated 500 million people in the world's most vulnerable communities that rely on working equines as, as a lifeline, really, to support their livelihoods. Um, so, yes, as you said, the Donkey Sanctuary, um, and they are part of the newly formed Working Animal Alliance. Um, and they're all working to ensure that the health and safety of those working animals is included in the negotiations and pledges made um, at the conference, which ended this just this weekend gone. So Ian Causey, who is the director of advocacy and campaigns at the donkey sanctuary um he highlighted that there's there's more than 40 million working donkeys and in many parts of the world they are you know they're integral to sustainable living um they're crucial to emergency responses as well as recovery from climatic events so yeah it's it's really important that they are that they're considered you know when um when global leaders are, are making plans for the future and how how we tackle climate change and who else was there from the horse world, or perhaps I should be saying the equid world, as we're talking about about donkeys as well as horses yeah. and ponies? Um, absolutely. As as I just slightly mentioned there, there's been the newly formed Working Animal Alliance and World Horse Welfare are also a member of that. Um, Debbie Warboys, who's their international programme officer, uh, she was there and she highlighted about how working equines are a sort of a vital and often overlooked part of life for communities around the world um, and how their role in climate change resilience and adaptation is also often ignored so again really raising that awareness of the sort of key role that uh, working animals have um, in providing sustainability in many areas and also the other side of which is ensuring that they're they're really not forgotten when uh, policies are developed that look to build a more sustainable world hmm. well thank you lucy for filling us in on that and thank you to eleanor and becky for joining us today too So I'm joined now by our point-to-point editor here at Horse and Hound, Gemma Redrup. Gemma and I wanted to have a little chat this week because the point-to-point season is really getting going now. And Gemma, actually, that's a talking point, isn't it? The, uh, the, the season is starting at a slightly different time of the year to normal. Yeah, that's right, Pippa. So usually you, the point-to-point season wouldn't start until sort of late November, early December. But uh, this year it started almost a month ago now and it's it's the first time it's happened, um, but it's, it's good to get it un- underway again. 
And is there a particular reason why it's come forward? Part of the reason is that obviously a few fixtures were lost with COVID and people are sort of desperate to get their, their horses out and, and up and running again. Um, so, and there was an owner and trainer survey that was um, circulated back in early July and the, the general consensus was, yeah, let's get going and get these horses up and running. So that's what they've done and it's all very exciting. Hmm. And how many fixtures have we had so far? We've had uh, roughly six so far and yeah, it's all, got, it's all gone well. Although, unfortunately, we've not, or fortunately, if you're, if you're not in the racing world, it's been quite dry. Uh, so we've not had a lot of rain. So runners wise, it's maybe been a little lower than some uh, fixtures would have hoped, but it's, it's been very, very, um, all the fixtures have been very well supported by spectators. So um, there's been a good atmosphere. Mm. And just to explain that for people who might not be so in the know, if it's dry, the ground's a bit firmer and some trainers wouldn't want to run certain horses on that ground. Is that sort of the, the join up there? Yeah, ex- exactly. So it's it would be the same with, with horses in, in most disciplines, I suppose. Some prefer a bit of cut in the ground and some prefer to go on the top of the ground. So uh, the fact it's been a bit on the drier and firmer side, uh, people with those soft ground horses just won't run them, basically. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'm sure we'll be having some rain later in the year for those horses that prefer the softer (laughs) ground. Um, Gemma, have you been out to a point to point yourself yet? I went to one 10 days ago at the Southwold uh, meeting at Reevesby Park, which is sort of north east Lincolnshire. And it was the first time I've been to a point to point since just before the first lockdown in March 2020. And it was a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon, took a big picnic with my family, uh, was reporting from there as well. But it was so, I didn't realise how much I'd missed standing out in a field, basically watching horses go round and round. It was really lovely. Um, and every, there was just an overwhelming sense that everyone was just happy to be out again um, and enjoying it. And there were people, all sorts of, all ages there, all back, all sorts of backgrounds. And but everyone was just sort of united in the fact that we could go pointing again. It was lovely. Yeah, great. And it sounds like uh, you're an advocate of people obviously going to their local point to point and it would be a really great day out for anyone. It would. Yeah, it's there for anyone that hasn't been. I really urge you to go. Um, and if you haven't and if you have been before, but haven't been since uh, since Covid and maybe you're worried about, you know, going back to these fixtures, I from my experience and from at that one point to point and from other people I know that have been pointing, there is absolutely nothing to be worried about. Everyone's very respectful of sort of the rules and and it's just really, really good fun. Uh, whether it's raining or very sunny, although obviously we'd much prefer it to be sunny, there is something for everyone. There's always trade stands, food, a bar, <laughs> which is nice. And you can have a little flutter as well if you want. And like at Reesby, there was there was um, a children's dog show as well, which was very cute. I watched for five minutes, so I watched the puppy class and it was very sweet. So there really is something for everyone. So yeah, if you haven't been or you think you're going, do go. Hmm, it sounds like good fun. And Gemma, this week, the 18th of November issue of Horse and Hound does include our point to point special. What can people read about in there? Yeah, so we've got a couple of features in there. Um, one that I've written, I did an interview with James King, who is the reigning men's point to point champion jockey. Um, and he was great to talk to, really interesting. So you can read uh, yeah, an interview with him. And then my colleague Lucy Elder has written a feature that focuses on a new race, um, series of races this year, um, 
which is the Thoroughbred Breeders Association four-year-old maiden series, which is going to be quite interesting because it will showcase four-year-olds at the start of next year um, at, at a few point-to-point -point fixtures. So she's looked into that and what trainers think about that. Brilliant. Well, of course, listeners, that's the multi-talented Lucy Elder, who you hear from quite often on our news segment of the podcast. She uh, writes features, knows about point-to-pointing as well as, uh, as working on our news desk. So uh, I'm sure that everyone will enjoy those two features in our point-to-point special in the magazine. And of course, we're reporting on point-to-pointing every week now, Gemma. Yeah, we are. And people can obviously read those in the magazine, those reports in the magazine each week, the weekend after they've happened, when, it, when the magazine comes out on the Thursday. Or if you would prefer to read that report before then, you can check it out on the Horse and Hound website every Monday evening. So the day after most of these point to points happen, 24 hours later, we've got the, point, the, the full report from that weekend's meetings up there ready for you to read. Well, thank you so much, Gemma. It's uh, great to hear about another area of the horse world that I don't think we've touched on an awful lot on the podcast in the time we've been running. So really great to have you on and, and hear about point to pointing. Final question. Yeah. Do you have a tip of a rider or jockey, I should say, jockey trainer or horse that we should look out for this season? Oh, gosh. I mean... <laughs> That's a tough question. You've put me on the spot, Pippa. I know. I didn't prep Gemma that this question was coming up. Um, I, you can't go wrong looking for um, a Gina or Jack Andrews ridden horse and trainer wise, Fran and Charlie Post. They've always got some, some nice horses in, but I mean, there's loads and that's just off the top of my head. I could name loads and loads and loads, but yeah, um, I'll start with those two and you should be all right. Brilliant. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you for joining me today. All right. Thanks, Fafa. So now we're going over to Jason Webb, a trainer who specialises in starting young horses and retraining those with problems. Born in Australia, Jason is now based in Kent in England and his online training service at yourhorsemanship.com means owners around the world can learn and benefit from his techniques. Over to you, Jason. In this episode, I'm going to talk about bitting a young horse or a horse that hasn't had a bit in its mouth before. Now, when I start this process, I, I like to establish a, a connection with the horse. So I'll do a little bit of groundwork and that, that might include a little bit of leading, contact, giving a rub over, just getting a sense of the horse and the horse's sense of me as well. One of the main controls that I want to ha have on a horse before I start bitting is the ability to bend my horse's head or flex my horse's head. Now, you will have all seen a, a carrot stretch or heard about a carrot stretch where you get a horse to follow the carrot round and they bend their neck round um, which is great for the core and for general flexibility. However, I like to teach a horse to do that stretch of pressure from the head collar initially. So I apply pressure, say asking my horse to bend to the left and teach them that when they bend to the left, there's, there's a release of pressure there and they pretty soon learn to follow that pressure and I get a similar carrot type stretch, but using the head collar. And I like to do that both to the right and to the left and get that get my horse sort of relaxing in the head and neck. And I'll even, once I've got that, I might even teach my horse to do this, a similar thing um, to pole pressure. So again, using the head collar and applying pressure to the rope below the horse's chin, I just hold a little bit of pressure there and I wait for the horse just to lower the head fractionally. When they lower their head, I release. And pretty quickly, 
Um, you'll start to find if you if you can wait it out. Some horses like to just hold your hand there and, and won't lower their head. But if you can wait it out and release when the horse lowers their head, even the smallest fraction, very quickly you'll be able to apply pressure and lower your horse's head. This not only acts as a sort of a calming or has an a calming, calming effect on your horse, but it also just loosens your horse up and, and allows you to control your horse's head for when you go to, to put a bridle on or put the bit on. The next part is to teach my horse to, to have something in its mouth. Now, for those of you that have, have had trouble, you know, worming your horse or, or doing anything like that, when you approach your horse, horse's head, a lot of horses, their instant response, if there's something by their head that they don't like, is to raise their head. Now, if that response to you touching them around the mouth takes your hand away, then for the horse, that becomes a response that works to, to stop you from touching them. So we need to think in opposites here. So if my horse, if I go to, to touch my horse um, around the mouth and they put their head up, I follow them with my hand. And even if they are 17-2 and they, they can raise their head higher than me, I just simply hold my hand up under their jaw until, and they will do, every horse will do, get tired and lower their head down again. When they lower their head or even indicate, even just take a little gesture downwards, I'll take my hand away. And then I'll repeat that process until such time that when I touch my horse, they're thinking more down than they are evading by bringing their, bringing their head up. So that's a great little trick if your horse is evading when you're worming or bitting. Now, most of you will have done this and will know that there's no teeth um, at, a, at the place in the horse's jaw where the, the crease of their mouth, where the bit would normally sit. In that area, there's no teeth. So you don't need to be worried about just sliding your thumb into that area or into your horse's mouth there. Now, when I do this, I like to put my four fingers over the horse's nose, just just gently. I'm not trying to. I'm not cutting the airways off or any or trying to force them to keep their head there. That is just a. It's just a general ability. And if I use those four fingers, it's to bring my horse to the left or to the right, as I have done with my flexions. And I'll put my thumb in the in the, the corner of my horse's mouth with my four fingers over the top. This gives me a little bit of ability to follow my horse around again until they lower their head. And I once they're doing this, I want one more little response. I want them to sort of mouth on my thumb. So I want them just to open their mouth and just sort of move their mouth a little bit. The moment they do that, I take my hand out. And I start to teach them that when my thumb goes in, they just mouth a little, I'll take my hand, I'll take my thumb out. And that starts to get them the idea of opening the mouth. I might spend a, a few days doing this, if, particularly if I get a, a sensitive horse. A lot of horses that I get in, I can just pop the bridle straight on. But if I get a sensitive horse, this is the process I'll go through. Then it comes to introducing the bridle. Now with young horses, I'll always have the bridle about two holes too big. So that there's, there's not, there's not going to be a sort of a, a snag as I go over their ears. I, I bring the, the headpiece of the bridle up my horse's forehead. 
So my horse has contact. If you just sort of plunk on, onto a horse anything, there is a chance they can be a little bit shocked and, and there's no connection. So I always start by sliding my hand as if I'm patting my horse up towards the ears. And then I stop just before the ears and I get my two fingers on one side of the bit and my thumb cradling the bit on the other. I don't know whether you can follow that. Um, ready to plop my thumb in, into the corner of the horse's mouth and just slide um, and, then, and then apply pressure to the top of the bridle. So the headpiece, I just apply pressure from there to slide the bit in. I don't push the bit in at the bottom. That part is just my thumb wiggling, waiting for the mouth to open. And then as the mouth opens, I have a slight pressure from the top and I slide over the ears. And a lot of the time, as you're sliding over the ears, your horse is thinking about what's going in their mouth. So the ears don't become a focal point or something to worry about. And then I can get it on. So, and I like the bit to be relatively loose to start with. So I wouldn't even have a, a smile in my horse's mouth. It would just be sitting there comfortably up, but not, there wouldn't be any pressure on the corner of the mouth. And I just let them chew on it and eat something and spit stuff out and just play and just explore the bit for a couple of hours. And a lot of the time that will be a session for the day. So anyone that's get it thinking of sending their horse off to be started, that is always a good thing to be able to do and can can bring the process along. Once they've, once they've got that far, it's simply a case of just putting it on and just letting them have it in their mouth. And I might start to play with some flexions and get them used to just moving their body around with the bit in, although I wouldn't be using uh, bit pressure in the early stages until they're really comfortable with that and with the idea of flexions. Once I feel they are, then I'll move on to using bit pressure to do the flexions and um, build, build from there. Once your horse is settled to the bit, and you'll know they're settled because they'll stop chewing and opening their mouth and, and sort of... <laughs> basically exploring what is this in my mouth you'll see them standing quite settled they'll either be able to eat carefully but generally they'll be just standing there and they won't they'll just have their mouth closed once you get to this point you can take the bridle off and taking the bridle off needs to be considered as well for, for sensitive horses I might even lengthen the, the bridle so it's hanging down and giving me more room to clear the ears when I take the headpiece off and I'll, I'll gently, if I feel like it, and you look at your horse's eyes when you're doing this, same thing when you're putting it on. If you go up to your horse's head and you feel them, sort of their eyes open wide, their head comes up a little bit, there's a fair chance they're wondering what are you doing? Sometimes it can be as simple as just pausing. Just wait for your horse just to go, breathe and carry on. Other times you might want to do a few flexions and just get them to relax their head down and get into that nice state again. Then I like to go over one ear, over the other, and I, I get it done smoothly and relatively quickly. And then I just leave the horse to drop the bit. Whatever you do, 
Don't try and pull the bit out of the horse's mouth. Doing this can clonk them on the teeth and can cause real issues um, with bridling going forward. So that is a quick, quick overview on how I get my horses uh, bitted and starting the mouthing process. Thank you, Jason. Next week, Jason will be back to talk about lunging young horses and I'll be speaking to event rider Tom Jackson about his recent top 10 finish at Poe 5 Star with the smart mare Billy Cuckoo. Thank you for listening today. Please do rate, review and share the podcast in your podcast app to help us spread the word. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.